Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Top story of the week that has captivated the nation is this spate of potential explosive devices sent all to prominent Democrats and critics of the president. In total, George Soros, the Clintons, the Obamas, CNN and John Brennan, Eric Holder and Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Representative Maxine Waters, Robert De Niro and Joe Biden were all targets of these pipe bombs that were sent through the mail. We still don't know the exact motive, who sent these. There's a nationwide manhunt for who sent these. The focus is in Florida right now. But for all the details, we spoke to Lauren Meyer. She's a reporter at Axios. Authorities are treating all of these devices like live explosives. So law enforcement officials are now working across the country to track down this person or people responsible for sending all of these suspicious packages. So Thursday morning, we know that actor Robert De Niro received one of these packages. It was intercepted by someone on his security detail who happens to be a retired New York police officer and noticed the similarity in these packages, and he was actually able to call the bomb squad directly to get this handled as quickly as possible. We also know that two packages were sent to, or were at least addressed to former Vice President Joe Biden. They were discovered at Delaware Postal Facilities and were removed late Thursday morning. I think the investigation now has centered in on Florida. They think that a lot of the packages might have originated out of there. Although investigators initially believed that some of these packages may have been delivered by hand or by courier, they've now concluded that all 10 were likely sent through the mail. And a similarity across all of these packages is that the return address was the office of Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Of course, the name was also misspelled. But there are a lot of similarities that we're seeing with all of these packages. They each had about thick first-class stamps on them. They were very heavily taped in Manila envelopes lined with bubble wrap. All the mailing labels were printed on a computer. So the bottom line here is that fortunately no one was hurt, but authorities are still unsure of why these bombs seemingly to be structured similarly to pipe bombs didn't go off. And now the question is whether that was because of their intention to simply incite fear and not harm, or if there was a technical flaw that prevented it from going off. And because of the similarities, all the with the packaging and the actual devices themselves. They do believe they're all connected. Uh, We don't know if it's a single person or a group of people, but they're all connected that way. I I know experts have said that because the devices did not go off, there is a treasure trove of forensic clues that they can look at, anything from DNA to fingerprints. And that's obviously where the investigation is starting. I mean, they're even looking at video when the packages first made it into the postal system. You know, everything is tracked by video when it starts in the postal system. So they're trying to like retroactively go back to see where it started and if there's any video of a person maybe dropping it off or something. It's almost like they're trying to start from the end of the construction of the device and work their way 
way back. So for now, the packages have either arrived or are still being sent to Quantico, the FBI lab in Virginia. And what they're going to try to do is trace this evidence that could include DNA or fibers found on the packages, fingerprints on the back of the stamps or on the tape. They'll begin disassembling these packages and attempt to trace them back to their sender. And so now they're going to try and see whether the constructor of these seemingly pipe bombs, whether they left some sort of signature, whether they left some sort of error in the wiring, and maybe that was sort of their trace. So there are a lot of clues that investigators now have to put together. They just have a big puzzle ahead of them. And we learned a little bit more about the devices themselves. They said they were made out of PVC pipe covered with black tape. They each had like a small battery, some wires, maybe some broken glass for maximum damage. But is there anything else that they've told us about these devices specifically? Authorities have been releasing very few details about the specifics of these devices. They're saying that these are capable of being live explosives. Whether or not they are is still unclear. We know that they have taken x-rays of these explosives and are examining those and are going through these wirings and the batteries and the overall material that these are constructed from. It's hard to ignore who the targets are. George Soros, the Clintons, the Obamas, CNN and John Brennan, Eric Holder, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, as you've said, is the return address for all of the 10 devices Representative Maxine Waters, Joe Biden, Robert De Niro. These are all high profile Democrats and uh, critics of the president, the administration. How has the president been responding? The president has largely been hunting the blame off of himself and his rhetoric and back onto the media. So although we saw a different Trump rally from his normal show on Wednesday night, it was absent from the locker up chant while he was speaking or fake news references as he points back at the end of the room and criticizes the media and the crowd goes wild. He did, however, at that rally, call for the media to unite the country. He also tweeted on Thursday, again, blaming the media for this. He said that a very big part of the anger that we see in our society is caused by basically fake news and that it's gotten so bad that it's beyond description. So what we see here is something very standard of the president uh, these days is that he is not wanting to take the blame for himself. I would imagine that he would be pretty fearful that it could impact him in the midterms if he were to really embrace the, the blame for this and punting it back to one of his easiest targets, which is the media. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. The investigation is ongoing. I know details are going to be coming in and changing every day. And the manhunt is on to see who or what group might have sent these out. Thank you very much. Lauren Meyer, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's election season and you know you've been getting all the robocalls, you've seen all the ads on TV, but the most popular way this year for political campaigns to reach voters is not through these ads on social media. It's not TV. It's not these robocalls. It's flooding cell phones with personalized political text messages. And while they might be annoying, they don't violate these rules on automated bulk texting. It's called peer-to-peer -peer messaging. So we spoke to David McCabe. He's a tech reporter at Axios for more on this. And these are what are called peer-to-peer -peer messages. So you, you said robocalls. They're not quite like a robocall, which is often recorded and auto-dialed, meaning they can dial more people because it's a machine doing the dialing. But to get around federal rules regarding robocalls and robotechs, these are actually peer-to-peer. -peer. So it's another person at the end of the line and it becomes 
becoming, yes, more popular with political campaigns. There's companies now that have offered computer platforms or mobile apps that these people can use where it'll autofill whatever message it is. The key, as you were saying, the peer-to-peer, these campaigns need somebody to literally hit send for every single one. And they say that these people can send thousands of them an hour. Right. I mean, they use these platforms on both the left and the right, platforms like Open Sesame or Hustle, you know, Open Sesame on the right, Hustle on the, on the left, to send these texts. And it's essentially building a, a platform to do that at scale. And of course, it's not entirely unlike phone banking. We all know that people can go and they can call on behalf of political candidates, often at sort of a common space with other people or their supporters. So it's not entirely unlike that in terms of it being another person on the other other side of the equation. And the reason why these are gaining in popularity is just because they are so effective. I think they have an open rate of like about 90 percent. Basically, if they send it to you, you're more than 90 percent likely to actually open it and read some of it at least. So the, the engagement is there. And Open Sesame, which is one of these providers, says that 90% of text messages are read within five minutes. And I mean, I think that is instinctively, we know how impactful that could be given that we get so much political email, so much political mail in this election and in every election now. And there's so much messaging that any way to break through to voters is a big deal for campaigns. Right. I mean, we're glued to our phones and you tend to open a text message. You hear that little ping and you tend to open it right away, almost, as you said, within five minutes, a lot of times we're kind of conditioned already to ignore a robocall or ignore a call that comes in from a suspicious number or an email. You kind of already can see by the headline or something that it's spam or something like that. But with these text messages, you're really unclear about what it is. So you have to open it. Broadly speaking, the text message inbox is a less ad heavy spot for many people. Not everybody, but I think generally speaking, we see that the messaging apps remain really popular with people and and they have not been monetized in the same way as opposed to Facebook or Twitter, where people are now more used to ads being in the feed and messaging more broadly being in the feed. Yeah. And since it's a a person to person thing, I mean, obviously they're kind of sending them in mass and all, but campaigns are hoping for that interaction. Maybe it is something you're interested in. You text back and you say, hey, where is that rally going to be or what's going on? Then it opens that line of communication and the campaign can interact directly with those voters. And that obviously is a huge benefit for voter contact and another reason, as you said, that they like this technology. Obviously, a lot of people are angry, though, for myself. I feel like I can't trust my phone anymore. You know, if a (laughs) suspicious phone call is coming in, I don't know if I should answer it or not. Now with the text, you know, emails the same way. Now it's text messages. Uh, So a lot of voters are angry about this because they feel like they didn't sign up for these things. How are these campaigns getting your phone numbers? And then, uh, you know, I I know that there's been a few complaints and lawsuits filed already. Campaigns are are getting this from voter records or from the firms that buy and sell voter data. I mean, there's a longstanding, pretty significant market for voter data that feeds into all of the the digital advertising that we see. And and so a lot of records are out there and there's obviously a lot of public information. But you're right that some consumers have not been super happy with this. They filed complaints with the Federal Communications Commission. So I know there's some effort to get some clarity about what these messages are subject to restriction-wise and whatnot at the FCC. They haven't ruled on that yet. One of the ways they get your phone number, and this was, I mean, had to be one of the most creative ways, I guess. There was a liberal billionaire, his name was Tom Steyer, and he had a political action group. They submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to public colleges asking for their student directories. 
And I think 18 schools complied with it. Then they went through all of those directories. They got all the phone numbers that they could. And then that's how they built out their phone list. And then they sent text messages to all those people. So they're finding your numbers any way they can. I think there was reports that the Trump administration was renting out numbers that they have to political campaigns, uh, like $35 per 1,000 addresses, things like that. The big question, how do we get these things to stop? You can text back. You should be able to tell that they're coming from an individual. They'll show up as a, a 10 digit number and you should be able to text back. Stop. But it is important to note that these these political parties and candidates are exempt from the do not call list, which has also been largely ineffectual anyway in a lot of ways. And so that is not enough to get them to not text you. Right. I mean, that's the problem that we have with robocalls. And I get it. The way they implement these things are different. But we've all been in those situations where we say, stop calling me, put me on your do not call list. And we still get those calls. And this peer to peer texting is largely un regulated right now. The FCC isn't really doing much. Maybe they're trying to catch up. Uh, David McCabe, tech reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of my favorite stories of the week allowed us to get a little black mirror on everybody talking about artificial intelligence and how they're going to be impersonating humans more and more now. Advances have come so quickly that uh, Google has just announced its newest AI phone calling assistant called Duplex. It can call a restaurant to make a reservation. It can call your hair salon to make an appointment for you. But this is part of a trend of offloading basic human interactions to robots. So we spoke to Emily Dryfish. She's a senior writer at Wired. And we went through this notion of how robots are getting involved more in our social interactions how they can schedule things for us without even consulting us. And it all turns into some weird territory. So what inspired me to write this article is that Google announced that that technology, the Google Duplex voice assistant, is going to be coming to people who have Android phones in certain metropolitan areas in the U.S. very soon. So it's no longer going to be just a theoretical thing, but actually people are going to be able to do it and use it on their phone. And when they first demoed it back in May, it shocked people because this is a personal assistant who sounds so human. She's so much more human sounding than the Amazon Echo, for instance, which sounds very much like a computer and which can't answer a lot of your questions. The Google Duplex sounds really real and is nimble and doesn't seem to get caught off guard when talking to you. This is a part of a growing trend of limiting all the stuff that we have to do. All these rideshare apps, everything's being automated. They tell you when your car is there. Food delivery apps tell you when your food's there. Airlines tell you about delays. Everything's already coming to you because of artificial intelligence. You don't need an actual person to interact with you. The new trend is, okay, the computers are already dealing with our calculations and our ability to get somewhere and navigation. Now the trend is to let the computers also deal with our social interactions. And that's what Google Duplex is at its heart. It's saying you shouldn't have to pick up the phone and make your own restaurant reservation. That's a task you don't need to deal with. Why have to talk to that stranger and have that conversation? We'll just take that off your plate. And that sounds fine, but I worry about what is lost 
as a human in society when we take away those small interactions with strangers, which right. I mean, to me, I kind I love talking to strangers. I know I might <laughs> be crazy, um, but that's how you meet people. That's how you meet um, interesting people. I, I love the way you characterize it in the article. You know, a, a human interaction has moved increasingly online. And, you know, it's a throwback to my time as well. Back when AOL Instant Messenger was the new thing. Yeah. And you'd worry, parents would worry who you're talking to because you don't know who the creep is on the other side. Now with the advancement of all these artificial intelligence things, now you don't know if you're actually talking to a real person. You might be talking to a bot the whole time. Privacy concerns, which everybody really gets impassioned about, privacy concerns arise from this type of thing also. Totally. I mean, a law just passed in California that chatbots have to announce themselves as chatbots before they can continue to talk to you so that people are not tricked into talking to a computer when they think they're talking to a human. And that is what Google Duplex will do. Google Duplex will say, hi, this is Google's personal voice assistant. I'm calling to make an appointment for Emily for a haircut. And that is so that people don't get caught off guard and know what they're dealing with with. So the other part, the other thing that I wrote about in my article is, is more, a little bit more black mirrorish because it doesn't exist yet. And there is no demo. It is just a rumored phone that the creator of Android, Andy Rubin, is working on with his company, Essential Products. This was reported by Bloomberg. The rumor is that he is working on a phone that will be able to automatically text and email on its owner's behalf after getting to know its owner's personality. Oh my gosh. You're right. The As things gain traction and advance so quickly, there probably could be a phone that does that. And, and you know, then it's making appointments for you and <laughs> all this stuff yeah, in, independently of you. Yeah, and it's not just suggesting to you like, hey, do you want to reply or hey... Do you want to have an appointment? It's actually empowered with the agency to make the decision for you. So you get a text message that's like, hey, you want to meet for dinner? And hypothetically, your phone could say, yeah, I do. And my concern is that changes fundamentally so many aspects of social interaction if we are letting our computers make those decisions for us. But I also have just a logistical and practical question about how something like that would work. I mean, if my phone agrees to a dinner date for me, how do I make sure I know that I have agreed to that? And what if my friends show up to dinner and I'm not there and they're pissed off at me? Right. Am I the one to blame or is my phone to blame? It's It, or, it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Or you're just talking to a friend in person and then you double book yourself because your phone did it for you. I mean, exactly. th you know, this is like you said, we were talking about Black Mirror and stuff, but this leads us further beyond that into the, the movie with Joaquin Phoenix and her. And then all these AIs totally. are going to be talking to each other and then leave everybody at the end of it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I just love all of this future talk, but it's not so far off anymore. These AI things are advancing so fast. You mentioned the law passed in California that they have to disclose their chatbots because things are moving so fast and all that regulatory stuff is always so far behind. Some people are very against this chatbot disclosure law because they think that it might quiet or stymie innovation in the chatbot market, which actually, you know, these kind of automated tech services have a real utility. And so there's both a lack of regulation and then there may also be a knee-jerk need to regulate out of fear. This is a very uncharted territory, I would say, um, but we are already in it. You know, it's serious. It's also, you know, we've been talking about the funny or unexpected or weird ways in which these bots will affect society, but also bad actors can take advantage of these bots and turn them into spam machines or other nefarious uses. And 
at the moment, we are at the mercy of the tech companies to try to design these products in such a way as to minimize their potential for abuse. But we just are basically crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. And the trust is not always there. So in the meantime, beware the robots. Emily Dreyfus, senior writer for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.